to Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah chapter 51. And tonight's message is the Lord will bring comfort to Zion or to Jerusalem. So here in chapter 51, the nation of Israel was preparing to leave Babylon to go back home to, to Jerusalem, to, to, to Zion. They needed to strengthen their faith in God. And here God tells them <clears throat> what they need to do. So let's begin with chapter 51, verse 1. And the scripture says, Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. What did God tell them they needed to do? The first thing was, listen to me. That's always great counsel. Listen to me, God says. He says, all those who are hoping for deliverance, and whatever that deliverance might be in your life, he says, listen to me. He says, all those who seek the Lord. He says, think about the rock that you were cut out of, the quarry from which you were mined. And here Isaiah seems to teach that the wonder involved in the origin of Israel is the foundation of faith for its restoration and for it to continue to move on. Isaiah says to the faithful remnant, you who are looking to be restored through God's help, look again at how God took care of you in the beginning. Verse 2, he says, look to Abraham, your father. And to Sarah who bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. He says, first think about Abraham, your ancestor. And Sarah who gave birth to your nation. Secondly, he says, think about Abraham. He was the only one that I called. He's the only one that I called. But when I blessed him, he became, he became a great nation. He said, and I multiplied him. So numerous, they're like the sands on the sea. I multiplied him from one and made out of him many. Verse 3. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden, the Garden of Eden, and her desert like the Garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Isaiah says, the Lord will comfort Israel again. And God's going to have pity on the ruins that she's in. And her deserts, they're going to blossom like the Garden of Eden. And her barren wilderness is going to be like the Garden of the Lord. And he says, joy and gladness are going to be found there once again. Songs of thanksgiving will fill the air. And then he says, third, here in this verse, that a melody of song. A melody of song now blesses the former wilderness where there was none. Through faith, that wilderness will become a watered garden like the Garden of Eden itself. And by God's grace, the desert becomes the Garden of the Lord. So Isaiah's message is this. He's saying, remember and rejoice. See, the value of remembering the past things that God has done is important and valuable. The wonderful things that God has done for you in the past. Don't forget those things. Because those wonderful things he did for you in the past, he will also do for you in the present. And he will also do them for you in the future. 
The people were confessing their sins. They were being reminded of what a good God that they serve. Listen to what it says in uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 7 through 12. He says, God says, you are the Lord God. You chose Abram and brought him from Ur of the Chaldeans and renamed him Abraham. When he, had pro- when he had proved himself faithful, you made a covenant with him. Speaking of Abraham. To give him and his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and the Girgashites. And you, God, have done what you promised. In other words, God, you have kept your word. You have kept your promise. For you are always true to your word. You saw the misery of our ancestors in Egypt, and you heard their cries from beside the Red Sea. You displayed miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, his officials, and all his people, for you knew how arrogantly they were treating our ancestors. You have a glorious reputation that has never been forgotten. You divided the sea for your people so they could walk through on dry land. And then you hurled their enemies into the depths of the sea, and they sank like stones beneath the mighty waters. You led our ancestors by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night so that they could find their way. That's the God. And and notice how many times in those verses the the, the word you was used. Again, speaking of God. And then verses 4 through 6. It says, listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation. For law will proceed from me and I will make my justice rest as a light of the people's. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke, and the earth will grow grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished." So again, God says here, listen to me, my people. Hear what I have to say, Israel, for my law will be made known. He says, and my justice will become a light to the nations. He says, my mercy and justice are coming soon. My salvation is on the way. My strong arm will bring justice to the nations. He's saying all distant lands will look to me and they will will wait in hope for my powerful arm. And he says, look up. To the skies above. He says and gaze down on the earth below. Because the skies will disappear like smoke. And the earth is going to wear out like a piece of clothing. The people of the, of the earth will die like flies. But my salvation lasts forever. My righteous rule will never end. So again we saw just before this. The value of looking at the past. At the things God has done. Here he's talking about the value of looking forward. Looking up, he says, my salvation is coming. And here God tells us what belongs to him. My people, my nation. And he promises his blessings using words like my salvation, which means deliverance. And here God told the people to look ahead and realize that justice would come to the world and they would be justified by the Lord. Again, notice the emphasis on the word my My people, my nation, my justice, my righteousness, my arms, my salvation. This is God's grace. Doing for his people what they didn't deserve and what they couldn't do for themselves. Heaven and earth will pass away. 
But God's righteousness and salvation will last forever. God's victory doesn't have an end. That righteousness is going to be displayed in a special way when the Messiah returns and sets up his kingdom on the earth. And that's what he was talking about. So through faith, Isaiah brings the future into the picture. In other words, we have a bright hope and a bright future. Then look what it says in verses 7 and 8. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Through Isaiah, he's saying of God, listen to me. You who, know, you, you who know right from wrong and who cherish my law in your hearts. He says, don't be afraid when people ridicule you. Don't be afraid of their insults. And a lot of people are afraid to, to witness about Christ, to share about Christ with people. Why? They're afraid of how people are going to respond to them. They're going to be afraid of their insults. Oh, you're a Jesus freak. Oh, you're a religious fanatic. Maybe so. Oh, you're just brainwashed. I say, yeah, I am, but I got to choose who washed my brains. There's a difference. He says, the moth is going to eat them like it eats clothing. The worm will eat those people. They'll eat them like it eats wool. But he says, my righteousness, God says, my righteousness will last forever and my salvation will continue from generation to generation. And it has. There are some helpful instructions given here in verse 7 about holy living. First, it speaks about the condition of holiness. Notice it says there in verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. Now, this statement says two important things about the condition of holiness. They have to do with the head and the heart. Notice, the head and the heart. First, the head. He said, no righteousness. No righteousness. To be holy, you have to know right from wrong. And you're not going to do very well in living holy for God if you don't know right from wrong. And many churches today, they aren't doing very well when it comes to teaching right from wrong. And our schools, they're even worse. If you learn anything, learn right from wrong. And secondly, the heart. It says here in verse 7, in whose heart is my law? You see, if the law, which is another, just another term for God's word. If the law, if God's word is in your heart, you'll obey it. We need to have knowledge of holiness in our head. We need to have that knowledge in our head, but it also has to be in our heart. The problem with a lot of people, they have it up here, but it never gets here. If we're going to have, if we're going to live a holy life, we must have the word of God in our head and also in our hearts. Some people are all head and no heart. They know right from wrong, but they don't live it. They don't live holy lives because they haven't put the law in their heart. They're full of the notion that is the knowledge of God, but without the emotion. That is the feelings, the compassion in their heart for God. 
And then there's another bit of instruction given in verse 7, and that's the criticism of holiness, which we just looked at. It said, the reproach of men and their insults. Now, if you live a holy life, if you love the Word of God and you live a holy life and it's seen in your life, you are not going to get much praise from people. You're not going to get much of an applause from this world for living a godly life. You would think that when a person cleans up their life, when they come to Christ and they clean up their life and their life is now honest and it's pure and they're trustworthy, you would think that they would be praised. But it doesn't happen. The world praises the wicked, not the righteous. And preachers who preach against sin will be opposed by churches quicker than preachers who live in sin. Politicians who represent an upright life are not going to be as popular as those who are immoral and dishonest. And then the last bit of instruction from verse 7 is courage for holiness. He said there, notice, do not fear nor be afraid. Some want us to think that living a godly life is for the timid and the cowardly, the old and the weak. But that's the devil's lie and it's been his lie since the beginning. Because it takes more courage to live holy than to live unholy. And preachers know that it takes courage to preach against sin and uphold a holy standard. You know, living godly at work, living godly at school or or in the marketplace or wherever you might be. This is not easy. And it takes a lot of courage. But you know what? We need to be courageous today. And we need to live godly today. In a perverse and crooked generation, as the scripture says. Persecution takes persistence. Persecution, you know, as the scripture teaches us, persecution is only a passing thing compared to God's faithfulness. So why should the nation fear men when God is on its side? In Isaiah 12, 2, it says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Isaiah, I'm sorry, Psalm 56, 11. In God, I have put my trust, the psalmist said, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 118.6, the psalmist said, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, if you have God's law in your heart, if you, if you have God's word in your heart, that means you belong to him. And you're saved. The moth and the worm will destroy the enemy, Isaiah said, but God's salvation will endure forever. Moths and worms, they don't do their work where they can, see, where they can be seen. And you, know, you can go and pick up a piece of clothing and you find moth holes in it. And you, you, know, you, you don't see it happen, you just see the evidence that it did happen. And that's what Isaiah says here. Moths and worms don't do their work where they can be seen. But what they do, man, they do it really well. Those moths were ready, already in the Babylonian Empire, and the leaders didn't even know it. Isaiah's thinking is that persecution is only a passing thing compared to God's faithfulness. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For our present troubles, our afflictions, they are small. And they won't last very long compared to eternity. Yet those afflictions, those troubles, they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs all afflictions. 
and that glory will last forever. Verses 9 through 11. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days and the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It says, wake up. Wake up. You know, and, and, and that's Isaiah and the people are, are, are crying out to the Lord. Get stirred up, Lord. Clothe yourselves with strength. Flex your mighty arm, Lord. Rouse yourself, Lord. Like in the old days when you, when you slew Egypt. You know, the people are saying, are you not the same today, Lord? The one that, like the one who dried up the, the Red Sea and, and you made a pass so that we could escape through those depths so that your people could cross over? Those who have been ransomed by you, Lord, they will return. They're going to return to Jerusalem singing and they're going to be crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear and they will be filled with joy and gladness. Last, look at the last sentence of verse 9. Notice what it says. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? In the Hebrew, it reads like this. You slew Rahab, you pierced the dragon. Now, Rahab is the name of a mythical sea monster that represents chaos in ancient literature. The name is used here figuratively as a name for Egypt. In other words, God had performed many powerful miracles in establishing Israel. And probably the most exciting one is when he dried up the Red Sea so that Israel could get across. And the God who opened up the Red Sea and done that amazing miracle is the same God today. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who made a road through the middle of the Red Sea can do something just as miraculous for you today. Now, his methods may change. He may not have to open an ocean for us to cross, go get across. But his love and his care never changes. Verses 12 through 16. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die? And of the son of a man who will be made like grass? And you forget the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he has prepared to destroy and where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive, the captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit and that his bread should not fail. But I am the Lord your God who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put words in your mouth. I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand <clears throat> that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth and say to Zion, you are my people so in the previous verse it was the people were crying out to the lord to get stirred up to to show uh, our enemy the mighty hand your mighty powerful hand and here the lord now responds to his people in these verses 12 through 16 he says yes i am the one who comforts you he says so why are you afraid of mere man 
Man is like grass who withers up and disappears. But here's why they were fearful. He says, you have forgotten the Lord. You have forgotten your creator. And many times when we allow our, our difficulties to overtake us, we forget about God because we're focusing on our problems. He says, you have forgotten the Lord, your creator. <clears throat> and he says, I'm the one who stretched out the sky like a canopy. I laid the foundations of the earth. He says, so are you going to continue to be in a constant fear of those people who oppress you? Will you continue to be afraid of the anger of your enemies? He says, where's their anger now? It's gone. And soon all, and soon all your, you captives are going to be released. Imprisonment, starvation, and death, that's not going to be your fate. Why? He says, because I am the Lord your God, and death is not going to be your fate. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea. I cause its waves to roar. My name is the Lord of heaven's armies. And he says, I have put my words in your mouth, and I have hidden you safely in my hand. I stretched out the sky like a canopy. I laid the foundations of the earth. I am the one who says to Israel, you are my people. You see, he says in verse 13, you forgot God. He says, forgetting God. Notice in verse 13, and you forget the Lord your master. That's why they were fearful. That's what causes us to fear men. The message here could be summed up based on this thinking, forgetting God is what brings about the fear of man. Verse 12 says here, God says, I, even I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and the son of, of, of a man who will be made like grass? The problem is you forget the Lord, your maker. Don't forget your maker. And don't be afraid of those who oppress you. In verse 14, God says, you, your release will come, it comes quickly. He says, in verse 15, I am your God whose name is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. God says, you have my word, you have my protection, you, and you have my covenant, and it's backed up by all of my resources, verse 16 says. He says, I'm the one who says to Zion, you are my people. And God's enemies are merely human, and they're weak. And the one who protects the faithful is the eternal, omnipotent one, the almighty God. And if God is for us, it does not matter who's against us. And then in verses 17 through 23, Isaiah exhorts Jerusalem. Let's begin with verse 17. <clears throat> awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. So he's saying for, for Jerusalem to stand up. He says, you have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. In other words, the dregs, if you remember, the dregs were, when silver was purified, it would be heated up, you know, several times. You know, it would be it was 100 degrees and they would pour it from vessel to vessel and the dregs were the, were the impurities. 
And they would rise to the top and they would skim off those impurities and they'd pour it to another cup. And then when those dregs would rise up, they'd skim it, off, skim it off until they had nothing but pure silver. But here the dregs was the worst of it, the, the corruptness of it. And when he says, you have drinking the cup to the dregs, that means he is, they, that they drank the worst of God's fury. He says, notice again in verse 17, he says, you have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fruit. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Jerusalem here is like a woman lying asleep on the ground due to weakness and in a daze. That's why it says she's not just to wake up, but she's to stand up. Stand up straight like she should be. What Jerusalem has drunk is from the hand of the Lord, verse 17 says. And then it mentions the cup of trembling. The cup of trembling that caused the reeling of drunkenness to those who drank from that cup. The cup stands for, again, the cup stands for the wrath inside the cup. God has brought this cup to Jerusalem. This wrath. And she's been required to drink it all to the very last drop till it's noticed. Drained out. Verse 18. There is no one to guide her among all the sons she has brought forth, nor is there any who takes her by her hand among all the sons that she has brought up. There's nobody to guide her. Not, not anyone to guide Of all the people that were, that were born in Israel, there's, there's not anyone to take Israel by the hand of, of all the sons that she's brought up. There's no one to lead them from among all the people that she's raised. You see, the emphasis is on the miserable condition of Jerusalem rather than on, the, than on the specific details of that condition. So, again, it's not necessary to think of Israel as a widow or assume that she's stumbling around still drunk and, and that she needs someone to guide her. The emphasis on the inability of anyone to help Israel. When God comes, came against, comes against them, there's nobody that can help them. Nobody can help them when God's hand is upon them. Her children have left her. Her own inhabitants, even their strong and willing, cannot lead the city at this time when God's wrath has been drunk by her. Nor can they take her by the hand to help her. Nobody. The close relationship of the sons to the mother is expressed by the emotional phrase, among all the sons that she brought forth. It is all of those that were given birth to Israel. Among all the sons that she brought up, that she raised, none of them could help her away from the wrath of God. The heart of the matter is the fact that man can't help himself from his condition of sin. Verse 19. These two things have come to you. Who will be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction, famine and sword. By whom will I comfort you? The two, these two calamities, God says, have fallen on you. He said, desolation and destruction, famine and war. Now, these could be two classes of calamity or desolation and destruction that are caused by famine and war. And God says, who's left to sympathize with you? Who's left to comfort you in those conditions? In other words, no human comforter could give Israel comfort only the Lord himself. Verse 20. Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets like an antelope in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the, the rebuke of your God. In other words, your children have fainted. 
Again, speaking of those that, that were all raised there, brought up in Jerusalem, that, that they've fainted, they lie in the streets, they're as helpless as an antelope caught in a net. The Lord has poured out his fury, God has rebuked them. And Isaiah now tells why Jerusalem's sons or the inhabitants of Jerusalem couldn't help her. Because their senses have become so dull that they've fainted away. And as a result, he likens them to lying down at the end, lying down at the head of all of the streets where they would be noticed and everybody could see them. So Jerusalem sees her streets filled with her inhabitants who couldn't help her. They couldn't do a thing for her. And Isaiah compares these who have fallen to an antelope trapped in a net that can't get out, can't get away. The reason why they lie like this is because they're full of the fury of the Lord. They've drunk exhaustively of the cup of his wrath. And being filled with his wrath, they cannot deliver themselves. So this wrath is identified as the rebuke of your God. The rebuke of your, that is Israel's God. Verse 21. Therefore, in light of what they just said, therefore, please hear this, you afflicted and drunk, but not with wine. He says, now listen to this. You afflicted ones, you who sit in a drunken stupor. Though this drunken stupor is not from drinking wine, but it's, your, but it's because you've been thrown down by the wrath of God. And even though Jerusalem has drunk to the dregs, that is drunk the worst of the wrath of God, of God. Israel is assured that the Lord will bring his mercy and will stand up for her. Jerusalem has endured the full measure of wrath, the cup of wrath that God poured out for them. Now, let her hear the announcement of blessing that God is bringing. Jerusalem has been addressed by God. He calls them the afflicted. And the reference is the fact, to the fact that Jerusalem has drunk the cup of wrath and they are now in misery. They've been afflicted by the wrath of God. Verse 22. Thus says the Lord your God, the Lord and your God, who pleads the cause of his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury you shall no longer drink yet. This is what the sovereign Lord he says to his people, he says, your God and your defender says, see, I've taken this terrible cup out of your hand. You will drink no more of my fury. God's sovereignty now stands out here. Notice, as God had given to Jerusalem the cup, God gave them the cup of wrath to drink from. Now, notice, of his own choice and his own will, God removes the cup. See, God brings his wrath and God removes his wrath. God alone teaches or decides when it is to be given, that is his fury, and when it's to be removed. He says the cup of trembling, the cup that's causing the trembling, is pictured to be in Jerusalem's hand. And from this cup, Jerusalem, he says, you're not going to drink from it anymore. He says, you shall no longer drink it. God has been making them drink from the cup of fury because of their rejection of Christ. But the day is coming when he'll remove the cup. The day will come when God will take away the judgments and bless them. Let's close now with verse 23. But 
I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you. Notice now that cup of wrath he took away from his people. He's now going to put it into the hand of their enemies. I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you who have said to you, Lie down that we may walk over you and you have laid your body like you have laid your body like the ground and as the street for those who walk over. He says now instead of making you drink any further of the cup of my wrath that I've given to you, I'm going to hand that cup now to those who tormented you. Those who said, we are going to trample you, Israel, into the dust, and we are going to walk over you. We're going to walk over your backs. Jerusalem is not going to drink from the cup anymore, but God is going to take that cup from them, and he's going to put that cup into the hands of Israel's oppressors, those who afflicted them. Jerusalem's oppressors have caused her great distress, great misery. And the treatment described in verse 23, it has some justice to it. Now, there are examples of this kind of cruel treatment literally carried out. Notice when it says in verse 23, um, in the middle, it says, lie down. He said, those who have said to you, lie down, that we may walk over you and you have laid your body like the ground as the street for those to, to walk over. Again, there are examples of this kind of cruel treatment literally carried out. For example, in Joshua 10, verse 24, it says, So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. In Zechariah 10, 5, it says, They shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. This is the picture of of some Assyrian monuments show how the conqueror would trample on the conquered who were lying on the ground. Jerusalem was forced to obey the demands of their oppressors. God won't only deliver the church from those heavy sufferings that they once experienced, but God is going to lay that same affliction, those heavy sufferings on Israel's enemies. Those same disasters that they imposed upon Israel, God is going to impose upon those who opposed her, who, who, who you know, caused her such misery. The enemies of Israel will not escape God's judgment. And the enemies of God today will not escape God's judgment. Every nation that has focused mainly on, that majored on anti-Semitism, all right, prejudice against the Jews has fallen. Egypt, Persia, Rome, Spain, Belgium, and Germany. God watches out for his people. All of his people. Not just the Jews, but all of those who belong to him. Because they've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for the promising word that you will bring comfort to Zion. You will bring comfort to your people, God. And Lord, I pray that we were all God's people. And that, Father, we would all have the law, your law, your word in our hearts. In our heads and in our hearts. So that we will obey you, God. That we will live for you, Lord. And that we will serve you.
with a faithful servant. Lord, I pray that you would watch over us now, that you would be with us as we get ready to depart, Lord, and and go our separate ways. Be with us through the week, Father, and and again, prepare us uh, for the week and, and for meeting again Sunday morning, God. Father, we thank you, we praise you, we give you honor and glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is Brother Donnie's going to come and give us some announcements. God bless you guys.